On this episode of Progressive Palaver, the group discusses Pink Floyd's The Division Bell. Hi and welcome to Progressive Palaver, a group of lifelong friends and appreciators of music discussing the greatest progressive rock bands album by album. I'm Joe Beauclair, and on this episode of Progressive Palaver, I'm joined by my very good friends, Ken Gregory, Tom Corcoran, and Paul Zotter, as we continue deep into the Pink Floyd catalog with The Division Bell. All right, gentlemen, after a somewhat lengthy delay after our pre-show, we we uh, finally are here to uh, discuss The Division Bell. Uh, that would be the second album in what we will call the the David Gilmore portion of the, of the Pink Floyd catalog. Now, you know, growing up, you know, this was the first album that came out sort of after you know, I got on the train, so to speak. So this was the the first one that I, you know, went out and, and purchased immediately, was very, very happy with, was quite frankly blown away. And it's one of those albums where I have always sort of naturally assumed that this album was self-evidently fantastic. However, today in the text, the group text, we get some dissension from, mm-hmm. uh, from within the Palaver ranks. So I'm, I'm going to be kind of curious to to have some conversation hopefully around that and, and, and try to understand that point of view. The other thing that um, sort of struck me, and again, just had no, no reason to know this back in the day. And quite frankly, you know, this is one of the things where I just took a lot of things for granted. But when I, I finally got around to looking at the, the wiki page for this and um, I'd listened to at least part of one interview today um, during a, a break that I had. It seems that there's a lot more interesting lore about this record than perhaps I was aware of. Um, you know, when when Gilmore covers this section in the Lost Art of Conversation podcast, which was just done in 2019, it, it's, it, it's sort of with the benefit of, of hindsight and it's David's story. And so it's presented in a very, a very positive and pleasant light. But when you, when you read the wikis, if, if they're to be believed, and I haven't had a chance to really dig deep in there. So again, if any of our listeners, you know, have any more information on this or can speak to the veracity of what is listed in the wikis, there was some you know, some tension involved in this. It wasn't the, the, the beautiful pastoral uh, experience that David perhaps relays in, in the podcast in 2019. So I, I find that just to be a little bit interesting. I'm interested to listen to that podcast, Joe, because it's always interesting to hear the uh, person who is in the middle of it, their, their point of view. Um, and it, he's on his own, uh, home ground so to speak i think even though it might be his side of the story he might be more forthright than if he was being interviewed by someone else so i think 
there's two sides to the story there that I'd be interested. I'm, I'm just interested to hear the podcast. Well, and, you know, again, if, if you have not listened to it, I highly recommend it. I think I've listened to the entire podcast probably half a dozen times already. I, I just, I honestly can't get enough of it. And it's so sort of concentrated that it's easy to digest. And I just find it fascinating. Like one of the things that, um, that came out and this, this sort of surfaced a little bit in my, my fairly recent Roger Waters rant, whether or not that ever sees the light of day. And it has to do with, with, with the role of, of Polly Sampson in, in this particular album. Now, just an FYI, Joe, there, there was actually a sneak preview to the Roger Waters uh, van, uh, rant during the Wish You Were Here episode. I don't know there, if you recall that. There, there was. <laughs> I, upon listen, though, the, the one in Wish You Were Here, when I listened to that, the next day wasn't nearly as inflammatory. It didn't, it didn't seem so bad. Right. right? It, it, it felt a lot worse in the moment. I, I maybe, a, maybe maybe the second one won't seem so bad after <laughs> you've, you've warmed up to it now. <laughs> I doubt that. But, but you know, so... My my introduction to this has to do with the with the um, the Lost Art of Conversation podcast. It was really the first I'd ever even heard of Polly Sampson, to be quite honest with you. And the way that David expresses or explains Polly's role um, in this album is charming isn't really the word I'm looking for. It's it's kind of romantic and, and heartwarming because it seems it's the way it comes across to me. And again, I'm, you know, a, a, a middle-aged divorced man, you know, who's also a hopeless romantic and keeps looking for his magical fairy tale. The way that David expresses the role of Polly in his life was as a very positive stabilizing force and ultimately as a a, a sort of creative partner and, and the way that that david expresses that i just find to be wonderful and i'm like you know i i understand how people who don't have that can be intimidated by that and can think that's you know a terrible thing and you know it maybe it's the the john lennon yoko ono thing i don't know um i never heard john speak of of yoko the way that david speaks of polly um but but again when david explains it you know he was and and especially when you put it in context of the experience he had with a momentary lapse of reason where he was very deliberately hesitant about writing lyrics and things like that. So the way he explains the division bell is they would be working in the studio. He would come home at night. He would sort of play Polly what they had. And, and initially she would start to pull lyrics out of him. And by the time it was all said and done, she wound up, you know, helping out as well. And, um, you know, so a lot of the songs in the Division Bell are actually written with Polly, and and just it seems to be a really really nice thing. Now, obviously, Roger has some you know issue with with Polly's role, but okay, that's understandable. But when you look at the wikis, um, you know, it it makes sort of obtuse mention of other forces in the camp not being particularly happy with Polly's role. And Bob Ezrin is called out, although it's also mentioned in the wikis that he later sort of recants that and acknowledges 
the the very positive effect that she had on David. So you know, things like that I, I wasn't aware of um, through all the years I've been listening to this record, and I just I find it interesting. I say we dive into the timeline here. We have quite a stretch between 1987 and 1994. Quite a stretch. I don't know. I think when a momentary lapse of reason happened, there were just flying monkeys and gargoyles everywhere. It was just it was just a very interesting time. We had, you know, prior to that, this is nineteen eighty-seven, radio chaos, clutching at straws, momentary lapse of reason, then hold your fire, crest of a nave from Jethro Toll won a Grammy for metal band that was etched in my mind at the time because we all wanted uh, other bands to win. Yeah, uh, that wasn't yes. right. <laughs> you know, I like Crest of a Nave, but that's not right. Well, that that would have been, yeah, at the end of 1987, uh, going into 1998. Big Generator popped out in uh, September, um, which has influenced us a lot. Not a perfect album, but huge influence. Then shooting into 1988, in March. Now, this th this was just prior to us, you know, finishing up high school. The the bulk of us and Tom, you were finishing up your junior year in high school. King's X, Out of the Silent Planet. Mm. May, Tom. This would have been your 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 famous study hall running up to to, to Joe saying you have to buy Operation Mind Crime <laughs> in May of 1988. Um, Frank Zapp is really active in this period, and and by November. Of 88, Pink Floyd has released Delicate Sound of Thunder. Now, into 1989, we've got uh, Dream Theater. Wow, Fish Junta makes it onto the timeline of progressive rock in the wikis. That's interesting. Not progressive, but definitely creative. Uh, Queen the Miracle, Peter Gabriel, Passion, King's X, Gretchen goes to Nebraska. Yes. That is 1989. June. You know, Marillion has season's end. You guys have talked about that at length, discovering accidentally the new singer. Tears for Fear, The Seeds of Love. They're getting a little trip being Beatles-esque in this period. Rush has Presto. I saw that tour in 1989, and, and, and we debated that kind of evolution that Russ went, Rush went through during that time. And then... We have to kind of bridge the gap into 1990. So allow me to click through that. Oh, heavens. Fish, Vigil in a Wilderness of Mirrors. Yes. That is a preview for what's coming for the palaver. We swear we will finish Pink Floyd at some point and we will <laughs> dive into Fish himself. August 1990, Queensryche Empire. October 1990, Faith, Hope, Love. Yeah, and we, we've talked through this before. Yes has Union in April of 91. Marillion has Holidays in Eden. Uh, more Jethro Tull, Fish, Internal Exile, Genesis, We Can't Dance. And uh, <laughs> 1992, um, I saw the ELP region. So Prague had some legs in 1992. I saw a summer show. Spock's beard was formed. We didn't know a darn thing about those West Coast guys. Um, March 1992, Tool, opiate. Mm. Uh, Porcupine Tree, pretty active during this period. Dream Theater, active. Frank Zappa, making releases. Roger Waters, Amused to Death. King Crimson, The Great Deceiver. 
Pink Floyd Shine on nine CD box set in November 1992. So, so already you had the live album, Delicate Sound of Summer, Thunder, and then they're milking it again with this Shine on stuff, and they haven't done anything uh, new. Um, Genesis, The Way We Walk, 1993. That's uh, volume two, actually. Whew. April 1993, Tool Undertow. Steve Hackett's active, Porcupine, Camel, Steve Howe, Grand Scheme of Things. Rush Counterparts, October 1993. Heaven forbid I forget the beginning of 1994. Marillion Brave in February. Yes Talk in March. Finally, 28th of March 1994, Pink Floyd, The Division Bell. You know, it, it's, it's funny because there's so many really wonderful items that you mentioned there can in contrast you were kind enough to send me a link to you know 1993 and music uh and so if you if you look at sort of the popular world of music i just tried to i just tried to figure out a couple of things as to what the hell we were looking at because for me this was kind of the beginning of music dying um popular music and it's funny because as I'm reading, you know, as I'm reading it, I, f I felt all, or as you're saying that, I felt all those great things. Here are some of the things going on in popular music. 1993, building up to this, was apparently the year that bands decided to alienate me forever. <laughs> um, REM releases "Everybody Hurts." Maybe it's a great song, but ever since I've heard that song, I, I can never listen to R.E.M. again. Hmm. Um, uh, UB40's Can't Help Falling in Love cover. Just rubbish. <laughs> um, Radiohead's Creep. Uh, I, I, I've professed that I've completely missed the boat on Radiohead, and it's because of that song. Because once I heard it, I was like, okay, I never need to listen to that band again. Um, <laughs> So I do I like to, Radiohead. So I have to I have to re revisit that band because I know I'm missing out. Soul Asylum's Runaway Train. Um, other other things that just completely boggled my mind. Um, I do anything for love, but I won't do that. By Meatloaf was big uh, as we approached um, the Division Bell. No Rain by Blind Lemon or Blind Lemon Blind Melon. Uh, mm. Great song. I was really hopeful that I was going to absolutely love that band, and and I just they just never materialized. A whole entire episode of music that I missed. Nothing but a G Thang released by Dr. Dre with Snoop Dogg, and these are the things that made songs like "Crying" by Aerosmith seem like terrific masterpieces of popular uh, pop. Um, and then the the funny part was was there are some just amazing things maybe not amazing things but they seemed amazing like uh, if I ever lose my faith in you by Sting Ten Sumner's Tales mm. love that album I suspect I'd still like it a lot if I listened to it <laughs> um, Tears for Fears with Elemental um, maybe my favorite Tears for Fears Fears album. Uh, all of them, and then the Counting Crows, the the August and everything, or whatever that album was called, with Mr. Jones on it. Oh, um, I do like that album for its consistency in songwriting. Yeah, that one that one was was really good. So that's just a flavor of what was simultaneously uh, permeating 
the the music world and and possibly even bringing it to its knees. Um, and I guess you can't really talk about 1993 without mentioning um, Nirvana and Pearl Jam. I have one aside, Paul. Yeah, and 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 um, I want to protect the innocent, but but I had an opportunity to to, to play live music once in 1994, and uh, you may remember this. And I walked up to the mic and I said, "Money, bullshit, Dave." Gilmore needs money like he needs another bong. Hit. I don't. Re- I don't remember. I wish I did remember that, but I don't remember. That. <laughs> <laughs> and that that was my response to Pink Floyd just seeming to cash in for no reason in 1994. Are you talking about in terms of the of the tour? Yeah, I, or the album? I, or I, I just, I just, I just, I just remember my my not not responding to what you know had been promoted for the division bell and it had been six years i mean i loved momentary lapse of reason but you know there was a long time and i just didn't feel the momentum of the magic in the division bell so it's it's interesting that and i'm i'm glad that this is the way we started out because all of the lore that i have come across the origin of the division bell lies in a momentary lapse of reason. And by David's own admission, a momentary lapse of reason was not a band album. It was, it was sort of forcibly constructed under the Pink Floyd name. And they embarked upon the, the delicate sound of thunder tour through that tour that apparently never ended. I mean, I think that the tour started in 87 and may have wound up in 1990 or something to that effect. I mean, it was a ridiculously long time, but through that, you know, the other thing that you hear sort of consistently from, from all of the people that I have seen talk about that tour, despite the fact that it was a ridiculously long tour it was by all accounts a very enjoyable tour and it allowed a couple of things to happen one the the three core members and presumably the expanded um, members of the touring troupe you know enjoyed the experience they had a good time they liked playing together and the other thing that it happened because if you think about it i mean nick mason didn't play much on a momentary lapse of reason because he didn't feel confident that he had the the chops at that point to be able to do so. Um, Richard Wright came in sort of, you know, at the end, as I understand it, of the whole process. Throughout that tour and, and working so much, the band, you know, knocked the rust off. And, and apparently the, the, the three core members of Pink Floyd discovered, hey, this is fun. We like playing together. So um, now there's a there seems to be a gap there between the end of the tour and and the start of the division bell. Now as it's as it's told, the you know the they started um, working on the division bell in January of '93, and they had already committed to starting the Pulse tour in I believe March or April of '94. So they wow. had they had a, a deadline of when they were going to do it. And, um, you know, the way it's told, and it's funny because I, 
if you, all of the written accounts say that, and, and even in the uh, the Lost Art of Conversation, you get the impression that it was the three of them who went to Britannia Row and started to jam, and David Gilmore sitting there with a with a with a dat next to him, and when something good would happen, he'd hit the uh, you know he would hit the record button, and that you know allowed them to sort of start to write as a as a as a band now one of the interviews that i did listen to today was an in the studio with redbeard interview about this which is isn't the best interview i've ever heard but in that interview it comes out that guy pratt was also in the room wait the redbeard interview wasn't the best interview you've ever heard it was what? not shocking what? i know <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, it was the first time that anyone had ever mentioned that Guy Pratt, the bass player, was in the room at the time. Um, all the lore that is constructed around this album seems to be that, you know, it was it was Nick, Richard, and David commuting in a room, and isn't that wonderful? Um, but whether or not Guy is there is, is almost immaterial. And to hear David describe it, he himself says it wasn't really important if anything that they jammed on in that session made it onto the record or not. What was important was for them to get back together and sort of start to operate as a band. And for me, you know, one of the things that I've always perceived about the Division Bell is it's like a momentary lapse of reason, only more band-like. And, you know, to, to me, it's a, it's a very you know, relatively close comparison, and I see the, the, the relation between the two. So that's why when, you know, Ken, you were gushing about a momentary lapse of reason, and then you came on today, and you're like, yeah, the division bell doesn't really do it for me. You know, I, I'm perhaps too close to it that I can't, you know, I'm like, well, they're, they're virtually the same thing, but, you know, maybe they're not. Um, but it, but but it's funny because again everything seems to be tied to the experience of of not making a momentary lapse of reason, but the tour that followed from a momentary lapse of reason led ultimately to this, and then by extension, obviously as we'll get to in the next episode, the endless river as well. I like your optimism. <laughs> so Ken, I I had an interesting. I, I had a similar feeling as you did initially, and. You know, of course, I liked Momentary Lapse of Reason. Uh, you know, a lot of years go by, and it was sort of like a... Um, it was a very dense group of years where it was a very busy um, bunch of years for all of us. It was like college, and we were in the midst of college and that, and that whole craziness and um, graduating college and, and everything. So... Um, yeah, tell the tell the friends of the Palaver you you were at Berkeley School of Music. Uh, I was at Berkeley School of Music, li living in Boston. Well, it's funny because I remember one of my one of the things that I will o always take with me in the the six years I lived in Boston is that I never had a car. I walked everywhere. If I didn't walk, I took the 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 T and. At the time, like I knew every single music store in Boston, and they were like these secondhand music stores. I knew every single one, and I would go to them religiously. And I remember always seeing the division bell in all the stores, whether it was like a mom and pop dive secondhand music store or it was Tower Records 
there were always Division Bell posters and all sorts of great stuff associated with the CD. Now, for some reason, and I've been thinking a lot about this, and I still haven't come up with a reason why, Every time I, I, I would hear little bits and pieces of the division bell, and for whatever reason, it just didn't strike me. And maybe I was just looking for some new chapter of my life, and but I, I did not pursue the division bell, and I just sort of shrugged it off. And I feel like I had a, a good experience with momentary lapse of reason, and of course, my, my, my whole personal history with Pink Floyd was wonderful but I just sort of lost energy. I lost interest. And similar to what I think, Ken, you were saying. And so, but, um, and there were a couple times where I would stumble upon a song and I would not, I would hear it just like a piece of it, maybe on iTunes or whatnot. And it just never really gripped me. It just seemed like, hey, this isn't like a real great Pink Floyd song, whatever. Anyway, it, it, it didn't grip me. So shoot ahead, like two years ago, um, I had just put my 5.1 stereo system in my studio. I had probably put, talk, talking about Sweetwater, I probably put the sweet, my, my, my Sweetwater sales rep's kids through college with all this crap that I had just bought. I mean, literally. I, li, li, I mean, Bonnie almost had a heart attack seeing all the crap that was sent to my house. Um, so I'm like unloading boxes and I have these speaker stands and everything else. And so I, I have all my speakers in my studio and, and I'm like, all right, I want to hear something. And I'm, I'm like kind of scrolling through YouTube for whatever reason. Cause I, I didn't have a CD player hooked up. I didn't have any CD players. And somehow I wound up listening to Pink Floyd and I wound up listening to Pulse. And, you know, the beginning of Pulse, at least the way I, you know, I remember it's like a lot of the stuff is from the vision belt. I'm like, wow, this is pretty good. And I'm like, and like the next song would go on. And of course, I mean, pulse sounds amazing. I mean, pulse is a really good sounding live album, even on YouTube streaming. And now I guess I was psyched because of my new speakers or whatnot, but everything was just really sounding nice. And I was really enjoying the songs from the, the division bell. So I went back and listened to it. And I, I, I enjoyed it. But, I mean, years and years, I mean, that was two years ago, and the Vision Bill came out in uh, you know, 1994. So, I mean, there was, a, there was a big gap there where I just had wanted nothing to do with the Division Bill. And uh, I'm glad I was wrong because I really enjoyed listening to it. And recently, it still held up from even a couple years ago. I, I was, you know, really impressed with, the melody and, and and the production and there was just there's a lot of rich, richness to this i know we're going to go song by song as we always do but just in general i was i was really pleased with it so um i my only thing is it's pissed me off that i mean i know richard wright passed away a few years ago but still, even before he passed away, there was still a huge amount of time that went by. Okay. And I'm like, well, why didn't these guys put out another album after this? I know there's complications when you are an entity like Pink Floyd to do anything. 
you know, there's contracts and I got to talk to my people and I got to talk to my people and, and, and I'm sure. But I mean, like, I, it, it really got to me. And I, I feel the same way about Van Halen. I was talking about Van Halen. Like, why don't these guys just put on another fucking album? Um, I really was, um, you know, I was just like, why could these guys have put out another album between 2000? I'm sorry, between 19, you know, when did they finish that tour? Like 96 or something? Let's just say 97. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to the uh, later years of the millennial. And uh, so it sort of just hit a, like a, a little sour note with me because I'm like, I, I really love hearing bands new stuff. And there's nothing more disconcerting as, than, than when you hear a band that you love come out with a, an album later in their career and it's like totally flat and it's like oh my god they shouldn't have done it but like the division bell was a higher note than i would one would think uh, from a band that comes out with an album later in their career i think anyway this is just my two cents and i think the division bell they ended on a, a very high note and there's always that chance okay well if they can't with another one would it have been as good We'll never know, and the endless river is not that because this is endless river is just a continuation of the tracks that they had with this. So I'm not even really considering that. But anyway, um, that's sort of my history with the album. I really wish they would have come out with more music because I, I thought they had they had um, they had they had gas in their tank. Still, I mean, I I really do think they had gas in their tank. So um, I think this is a great album. And, and that that's a fascinating story, Tom. And I think we'll have to look into, uh, I think, for next episode, you know, because David Gilmore had at least one, if not two, releases in that time frame. So I'll, I'll check Nick Mason's book to see if I can get any sort of indication as to, you know, were the other guys doing different things or, or how did that work? Because obviously, you know, Richard Wright was on Gilmore's, what, 2013 tour, I think, but Nick Mason wasn't, so... You know, have to we'll have to figure out what what that uh, what that difference was. Now, if we talk about the particulars of this album, the Division Bell, as Ken mentioned, um, was released in March of 1994. It was produced by Bob Ezrin and David Gilmore, released on the labels EMI and Columbia. The personnel include David Gilmore, Dick Mason, and Richard Wright, with a whole host of others, including um, John Karen, Guy Pratt, Gary Wallace, um, Tim Renwick, Dick Perry, Bob Ezrin, Sam Brown, Durga McBroom, Carol Kenyon, um, Jackie Sheridan, Rebecca Lee White, and um, Cameo by Stephen Hawking. And then the track listing is Cluster One, What Do You Want From Me, Poles Apart, Marooned, A Great Day for Freedom, Wearing the Inside Out, Take It Back, Coming Back to Life, Keep Talking, Lost for Words, and High Hopes. The Division Bell is the 14th studio album by the English progressive rock band Pink Floyd, released on 28 March 1994 by EMI Records in the UK and on 4 April by Columbia Records in the United States. The second Pink Floyd album recorded without founding member Roger Waters, The Division Bell was written mostly by guitarist and singer David Gilmour and keyboardist Richard Wright. 
It features Wright's first lead vocal on a Pink Floyd album since The Dark Side of the Moon. Gilmore's fiancée, novelist Polly Sampson, co-wrote many of the lyrics, which deal with themes of communication. It was the last Pink Floyd album recorded with Wright, who died in 2008. So that David Gilmore tour was not in 2013. Um, recording took place in locations including the band's Britannia Row Studios and Gilmore's houseboat Astoria. The production team included longtime Pink Floyd collaborators such as Bob Ezrin, engineer Andy Jackson, saxophonist Dick Perry, and bassist Guy Pratt. The Division Bell received mixed reviews, but reached number one in more than 10 countries, including the UK and the US. It was certified double platinum in the US the year it was released and triple platinum in 1999. It was followed by a tour of the US and Europe. Unused material from the Division Bell sessions became part of Pink Floyd's next album, The Endless River, in 2014. So, um, so there you go. Cool, can we skip to track nine? We cannot. I like 9, 10, and 11. <laughs> <laughs> Duly noted, Ken likes 9, 10, and 11. So that's coming back to life. Keep talking. Oh, I'm sorry. Keep talking, lost for words, and high hopes. Okay. There you go. So if we start at the beginning, um, and we can try to make this as quickly as we can. So... Um, Cluster One, you know, it's always interesting when you start out with a sort of subdued um, instrumental track, right? And, you know, there, there's, I don't have a whole lot to say about it, but two things did strike me about this. One, it is kind of a nice sort of gentle way to set the table, as it were. It's amazing, again, how long this song actually is. And one of the things, or the thing that I find most charming about this I sort of latched onto this idea, and, and for now and forevermore, I will think of this song as a musical conversation between David and Richard. Fade up is too long in the beginning. I'm done. Fast forward. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I at this point in my life, I just figured, like, if you were going to spend six years making a record, you needed, like, a four-minute slow fade instrumental to start the start the song just to set the mood but i agree with you joe it sets the table very nicely it's sort of a pink floyd trademark at this point and uh i dig it so if one of the hallmarks of this record is is you know operating as a band unit and bringing richard back into the fold it does seem to me you know poetically appropriate that you start out like i said with this sort of back and forth between david and richard it's not it's not you know blistering from either one of them but you don't need that right out of the gate and you know i i do think it is in some ways symbolic and when we talk about symbolism i'll be curious as we go through this if you know again it, it's sort of well accepted by everyone that this album is generally about communication or lack thereof. I'm going to ask in a couple of critical spots in this record, if there isn't some aspect of trolling Roger Waters here. I, I don't know that there is. I've never heard anyone say that. I'm just going to ask the question. Um, uh, I, I felt that in other places in the album. So, okay. so I'll say no currently, but quite possibly later. Okay. Yeah. Uh, good. So I'm not yeah. terribly alone. I mean, I think it's hard. It's hard 
I mean, even even in in real time when this came out, I mean, you knew that there was some issues between Roger Waters and, and David Gilmore and and Pink Floyd, and you know, at at my age and where I was in life, I was like, fine, it's you know, they're in a band, bands break up, and they get pissed off at each other. So it, it never really, I don't think I had a, a full appreciation of the depth of the legal stuff that went on and all of, and what that really means in, in that aspect. But even in that high level, I, I, I don't see how you can listen to this and not wonder to yourself. I wonder if he's singing about Roger, or, yeah. you know, it's, it, it is, it is interesting from cluster one, which is rather sedate. We go into the blistering, what do you want from me? Now, I have twice now had the revelation that this is actually a retread from from a song on uh, Gilmore's first album. And I apologize that I did not have sufficient time today um, to dig up which song that is. But I... I I literally have twice now had the the sort of um, text ejaculation. Uh, you know, oh, isn't this this isn't this what you want from me? So you know, I, I forget that I found these things before. But you know, it, it's I think it's a a really fun way to sort of get into the meat of this. Personally, um, I do think it is. Um, it, it's just it's classic. You know, Gilmore singing and guitar playing, I just think uh, on all levels, you know, it's like, here you go. And, you know, again, I think there, when you hear Richard describe this album, he hearkens back and he himself draws the connection between The Division Bell and Wish You Were Here. And so I think you hear some of that at this point. I find this song interesting in the fact that for the most part, it doesn't do much for me until we get to the bridge at the end. And David Gilmore, the melody he sings is just haunting at the end. Um, it's sort of just, to me, the song starts there. And that that melody uh, at the end, it, I guess would be considered the bridge. It, it just it takes on a form that I haven't heard in a lot of other songs where it sort of dominates the song uh, and, and it, it dominates the song in, in the fact that you almost think you're hearing like another chorus. And I, I almost, I'm waiting for that point in the song. And once we're there, I'm like, Oh, okay, here we are. But until that point, it just seems like it's almost just like a, a bluesy bar song. Like it doesn't really, like it's just sort of like a filler song to me, uh, like a like a filler album cut. So, wow. but I I do enjoy. But when we get to the bridge, that's my um, that's, that's my time. Are you talking about the section um, where he's saying um, you can own like and I, yeah. I forget if it ends. You can own everything you want. Yeah, you can drift, you can dream, you can walk on water, anything you want. Yeah. Yeah, that whole that that whole section. You know, and and for me, you know, it, this always it made me laugh back then because, you know, one of the 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 sad highlights of of my life was 
was the, the first collaboration that Paul and I did on an immoral rock lyric song called Complete Control. So, ah, yes. so when, when David Gilmore sings, um, you can sell your soul for complete control, it just, it, it, to this day, I still get a little chuckle out of that. So, <laughs> hey, Joe, so do I. In fact, it's my favorite part of the song. I always smile and think about that. And I wonder <laughs> if, if you think about the same thing. So I do, absolutely, 100%. That's fantastic. It's funny, you... I wrote a note about that. Oh, it's just, they say complete control, wondering to myself, oh, does it, did anyone else catch this? And <laughs> like, imagine you guys not catching it. You know? I'm, a little, I'm a little disappointed like, that Joe described that as a sad part of his history. I, I, well, no, I mean, it's, 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 it's a wonderful part of my history. It's sad that, you know, that's the pinnacle that I have, which is... <laughs> You know, it, it's kind of like being a foothill next to Mount Everest. You you feel kind of like uh, that's great for me, but you know, I I'm, I'm not nearly as accomplished as uh, as fellow members of the Palaver. That's you know, I, I love Complete Control, and I, I I remember it extraordinarily fondly. We had gang vocals on that and everything. Yeah, we that did. Was, that was fun. We put I that think we put that together at Algonquin Road, as I recall. We did very quickly, as I remember. Um, Joe, I want to say that the song that is the blueprint for this is called Raise My Rent, possibly. Okay. From, uh, I think it was, uh, the first David Gilmore solo album, which I think is just called David Gilmore. I believe you're um, right. Yeah. I, you know, for this one, for me is, is that, um, I never, I, I don't know, after the big, the big intro of, of, um, shine on you crazy diamond and you get the the down 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 you know like it's yeah. just so fucking epic after the big signs of life intro of the album before this and you launch into that uh this, um learning to fly with a blazing guitar um for some reason the the beginning of this song is a is a letdown for me um and I've always, this is going to sound so strange. I always have just kind of found like, felt like this song was just kind of phoned in. Um, really? It's just bizarre. However, um, it, upon recent listenings, I just sat there like with my jaw on the floor at the guitar. Um, and yeah, so I, this one is always hot and cold for me because. You know, it's the guitar is great. It's cool, but eh, just it's just kind of a weaker beginning to a Pink Floyd album for me. Oh, I'll say something positive. Um, <laughs> I, I do like the backing vocals. Uh, I know that there are several voices on here, uh, but one of those voices is uh, Durga McBroom, who yeah. is prolific with Dave Kersner, appeared in the recent um, Prague from Home concert. Uh, her solo stuff was produced by Fernando Perdomo. Uh, she, she has a long Floyd history in the studio and live, and now wonderfully uh, a, a really good history with the uh, Kersner Perdomo kind of uh, music ventures. So yeah. shout she, out there. Yeah, she is all over New World, and it sounds luscious. The Dave mm. Kersner album. Yeah. yeah. So we move on then to Pulls Apart. This is a, a different feel. I'm curious what you guys think about this. I find um, that this this rolling acoustic guitar thing is 
it to me it's very reminiscent of some of the early um you know david gilmore floyd type stuff which i find to be a very pleasant callback i would have never uh, before we did the palaver and i i really spent the time with those albums i would have never thought that um but i do i do very much you know think that at least that's what i think of now and, and i think this is one of those songs where i have to ask is are, are these lyrics on some level about roger there there seems yeah it, it just it feels that way to me again i have never heard anyone say that and and i don't think david ever would say that but it just it does seem to fit sort of this you know constructed history that we have yeah, especially when they say, uh, why did we tell you then you were always the golden boy then? Unless, of course, he's referring to Sid Barrett. Unless oh, no. he's referring to Sid Barrett. Oh. But, you know, the, the other part that gets me, because that, that, that is definitely one of, one of those, those lines. Um, and even, even just the, the fact he uses the phrase "Hey, you" is is interesting, and then yeah. he says, um, "The rain fell slow down on all the roofs of uncertainty." I thought of you, and the years, and all the sadness fell away from me. And did you know? Um, so I, I just I find it interesting. I don't know. I can't decide. I, the, the, I think that that last part for me, whether it's about Roger or anybody else, it, it, it's it's very touching. Um, you know, whatever relationship this is, that's that's you know gone away. You know, he's you know made his peace with it. But I just love because to me, it's very odd that you know you spend six years, you work up an album. And then you get to the last sort of chorus and you're just like, nah, fuck it. We're not going to write lyrics for this last part. Never mind. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, couldn't you just come up with something? But like when you really dig deep with the lyrics, it's like he says, and did you know? And he doesn't sing anything else. And he just says, I never thought that you'd lose the light in your eye. And it's just so sad because it's the the relationship that's ended, the person that he's made peace with getting away from and he's looking at them seeing them as you know someone who did lose the light in their eye that they've changed and they've changed for the worse and that's what makes me wonder if it is you know sid um and that could it, very well be yeah it's just a very melancholy uh feel which i which i i absolutely love i absolutely love and i think that the orchestration in the middle while it's a little bit contrived i think kind of they pull it off really, really well. Genius.com says it's about Roger exclusively. They don't mention Sid, but... Oh, wait, the first verse refers to Sid, but they're saying the second verse refers to Roger. Interesting. Hmm. Now, that if, if it's about Sid and Roger, that could bring some... <laughs> that could bring some interesting meaning to the, the title pulls apart. Yeah. Because yes. I was assuming it was between David and whoever it was singing about. But if he's talking about his two, you know, lost friends, and one he views in a very positive light, and the other he views in a less positive light, that could be very interesting. Right, right. Thank you to the Palaver uh, Research Department, as always. Yeah. Nice work, Kenny G.
Moving right along. Maroon. <laughs> Will this show up on our list of the top five progressive rock instrumental songs? I don't know. <laughs> but here it is. I do think that Marooned, Maroon does show up on the, the Echoes Best of Pink Floyd double CD set. I think, you know, and again, we had no idea that all the material that would eventually become the Endless River existed and in 1994. But knowing that, this song very clearly points to the fact that the Endless River exists and will be constructed in the way it will be constructed. This is as close a bridge to that album as you're ever going to find. And I do think it very much captures the live band feel to it. I remember, bear with me for a second, um, I should have said this at the beginning, but I didn't. I remember, you know, in in this in the in the winter break of of probably what was my senior year of college, being in and I probably with with at least some, if not all of you guys, in Doylestown bar hopping, and at one bar, was I denied service at a bar by any chance? <laughs> Oh, there could have been. No, nah, this was before you lived in Texas, I think. So okay. yeah, so you wouldn't you wouldn't have gotten. Oh yeah, because I moved afterwards. Sorry. M uh, Marty Wal Massimino's uh, Skyline Tavern in uh, <laughs> in Chalfont, which I think is now a brewery. Anyway. No, um, Skyline's still there. Is it still Skyline? I I, I ate there um, about eight months ago. Uh, we have to do a live a live broadcast there. Maybe it's maybe amazing. we should do a hundred episode there. Oh, I, I, I kid you not. I kid you not. That was uh, a place that I would go um, every Friday night with yes. my dad and my brother yeah. because my mom was going back to school and she would have late classes on Friday nights. And she's also either that or she was actually, she actually worked at the bank, uh, Bucks County Bank. Oh, gosh. And Friday nights were always a later night. And so yeah. we would go there. And um, about eight months ago, or maybe even a year ago, um, we decided. I decided to go back and, and visit, and we were like, "Hey, let's go to the skyline." And I looked at I looked up the skyline online, and from the menu and the pictures, it looked like it had totally changed around. It was like some it looked like it was like some like sports bar thing, and I was like, "Oh, you know what? They probably changed everything around. Let's not go." And Charlie was like, "My my my brother was like, we should still go. You know, Dad Dad really wants to go and." We should still go. So I'm like, all right. I'm glad we did because it's the exact same <laughs> inside. It's, I swear it was great. It's like they had like this, like the the leather, the red leather, yeah, yeah, yeah. seats and the, everything, and the, like the the whole uh, bar section over there. So what I was what I was saying was that I remember being in Doylestown bar hopping, and the the you know it was either it was 1991 changing to 1992. And in one bar, I was watching videos on the TV of Octung Baby, whatever song was being released by U2, and Pearl Jam. We went to another bar, and on the TV, they had the Delicate Sound of Thunder video being played. And, and I'm, I remember sitting there watching it being like, oh, I love this. This is amazing. But like seriously, like oh, I felt like from the time I was a senior in high school all the way through the time I was a senior in college, I was experiencing momentary lapse of reason, the tour, the delicate sound of thunder and everything that came with it. So I think that when, when the division bell came out 
maybe I was expecting something a little bit more. Maybe, uh, you know, and, and I think you can make the argument like this is momentary lapse of reason part two. Um, and it might have a better feel to it. It might have a better, and I think it does, but sonically the way it's presented, the way they, they did it all, it's very, very similar. And I think for those reasons, when this album came out, I, I don't think it impacted me as much as I, or at least I didn't think it impacted me as much as it really did. And going through this experience, I mean, I didn't even want to go see the Pulse tour. I, and I didn't. I was just like, I don't need to see that again. I feel like I haven't stopped you know, Pink Floyd for the last several years. But going back and listening to this for the first time in so long and just experiencing it as an album, Joe, to your point, the, the idea of this being a band album, like I don't think there's anything like earth shattering going on in Marooned, but I love it. I love the feel. I love where it sits in the record. It just takes you from one place to another, and it just kind of goes right through me, goes right by me, and in a blink of an eye. I, I really enjoyed this particular track so much more than I ever have before. And the place that it takes us is a great day for freedom. Now, this is one of the, the sort of big, um, you know, impact songs, I think. One of the things mm -hmm. that you would remember when you think about the division bell. So um, I love, I personally love the, the verse melody here. I think it's, it's, it's a little different than what David has been singing on the rest of this album. And I just, I, I think it's spectacular. I think it, there are a couple of really catchy lines that are in here. Two of those being the ship of fools had finally run aground and now life devalues day by day. That, that one always just freaks me out. Um, and, and the other, th another thing that, that really gets me about this is Wright's playing piano here. And it's one of those things where, you know, it, if I'm listening casually, I wouldn't necessarily pay attention. But when I'm sitting down and sort of paying attention, the fact that Richard is playing the piano really kind of hits me on the head. And I'm like, ooh, mm. I like it when he does that. Yeah. It's, uh, it's really, really good. You know, if you look at the lyrics for this, and, and it's funny because this was sort of written or performed, as I recall it, you know, that, that live in Gdansk video that I have somewhere around here that was played, you know, at the shipyards in, in Warsaw, um, in Gdansk in Poland, where solidarity began and everything else. Uh, this was sort of, you know, placed it as, you know, if you just look at the title, a great day for freedom, mm. you know, it makes sense. But if you read the lyrics to this, it's, it's, a it's not necessarily a happy ending. And it, it you know, it starts out, yes, sir, Ken. Well, in 2008, David Gilmore is quoted, that song is really about the aftermath of the fall of the totalitarian state. First, it was a joy and a release for the people with the freedom of democracy. But then it became horribly marred by the ethnic cleansing and genocide, particularly in Yugoslavia. David Gilmore expressed it perfectly. So, you know, it's yeah. one of those things where you have a little bit of sonic dissonance here because it feels 
very uplifting, very triumphant from a musical point of view. But when, like I said, when you look at the lyrics, you get that and you realize it's sort of about the dark side of it. Now, he does try to sort of uh, land this uh, a little bit better. And um, if you read sort of the last stanza, it 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 seems that if if the if the rest of the song is told from the perspective of we'll call it a protagonist who's experiencing all of these these horrible things that happen after that initial release, um, and and tell me if I'm reading this wrong. In that last stanza, though, he let's just assume he sort of comes home and he ends up you know being with his partner, and at least for that small moment the rest of those cares slip away and he's able to sort of gain solace in that moment is how I'm, you know, perceiving those lyrics. So it's, it starts out very triumphant. It has sort of the very dark middle and then it has sort of a much more personal, um, you know, conclusion to it all. Sometimes I, I feel like I'm not very smart when I read lyrics, which is probably why I steer away from them so often. <laughs> The last line that I'm that I'm reading and that I've been reading as I've been listening to this is, um, I turned and I looked at you, and all but the bitter residues slipped away. Slipped away. I don't know how to take a line like that because he's yeah, saying it's that, it's all that but, but sound, yeah, that but word, yeah. So I, I, the, I don't know either. But I I gotta tell you, it's emotional, which I love. And I got to tell you, like, I'm in love with the vocal, the vocal line through the, like you, Joe, through the verse. Oh, and yeah. then just when it gets to the end of the verse, you're like, I wonder what's going to happen now. And do you know what's happened? Nothing but David Gilmore glory <laughs> of you're basically taken back to uh, Goodbye Blue Sky with the orchestration and the, and the vocals. And I'm just like... I'm just like melting on my couch. Um, fucking awesome. I mean, it's just <laughs> wonderful. You know, at this point in time, it may be almost um, uh, stereotypical, but you know, the, uh, the gigantic, ridiculously rock goddish guitar solo on the outro of this tune that is just gorgeous and rocking and melting your face off and, everything that we've known and loved David Gilmore for. Yeah. I mean, there are certain Pink Floyd tropes, if you will. And there you go. And, yeah. and, and, and that's one of them. The, 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 uh, the backing vocalists are another one. And it's interesting, yep. you know, the way that, you know, and we don't need to get into this now, but, but the way that David and Roger use those, those tropes a little differently. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, you know, David, David loves to be a guitar God. He loves to shred your face off. He loves to solo as long and as often as he can. And I'm okay with that. And so from there we go to wearing the inside out and we get, um, you know, we get another Richard Wright lead vocal, which I, I know we've talked about before here on the palaver. You guys don't necessarily support that. Um, we have been quoted on the palaver as saying that Richard's voice is not lead vocalist material. 
however, I find it to be a very pleasant sort of um, disruption from the normal. Well, if it were the light, feathery summer of 69 vocal, I'd be more impressed. I, 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 I put this on while I was jogging, and, and when it got to this, I'm like, wait, what happened? The Pink Floyd album ended and Radio Chaos came in. Whoa, whoa, like... whoa! <laughs> Them's fighting words right there! Because <laughs> he, he does have a nasally kind of dark tone there. And I was like, because sometimes my autoplay on the digital services will, will, will do that, you know? Just, oh, if you like... This album, right. you're probably right. gonna like Radio Chaos. So here, chew on this for a while. So yeah, yeah. Um, I didn't understand it. And in hindsight, what he's doing through a lot of this, I I interpret as kind of um, '60s mantras or '60s rhythms. It it it's it's a throwback to early Floyd for me. And if if we could just take out the fake conga drums and maybe one of those synth patches and, and do a, a retro treatment of this. I think it's a really beautiful concept. And, and of course the lyrics are very dark and, and he's either being dark in response to himself or, 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 or drawing on a, a very dark character, but um, this could have worked. I'll just say it didn't work. Leave it there. Hmm. Can you talk about the character and the dark character? Does anyone else in this group think of The Invisible Man by Marillion when you listen to this? Oh, neat. Oh, I don't. Neat. I don't, but it is a neat. Yeah, there, there's just mm. something about, the, and it, it, not that it, it musically sounds anything like The Invisible mm. Man, but just that sort of disconnected you know, yeah. non-visible feel. This this person, you know, for perhaps very different reasons, is disconnected and isn't, um, you know, seen by people for, again, probably different reasons. And I do, you know, I'm, I'm always amused. There seems to be in these, in this, in this um, era of Pink Floyd, there's always these sort of lyrical connecting points. So here we've got him singing about creeping back to life, which ultimately points to coming back to life. Um, you know, it's just, it's interesting. And then we've got, um, you know, obviously the endless river is a line that's going to speak to the next album title. And, you know, it, and, uh, you know, it just, it's interesting the way that sort of happens. Yeah. I, Ken, I totally love the, your reference to like, this is kind of a throwback to older Floyd because, I didn't get that, like literally, I didn't get it in in 1994 or in any time after that. But after going through this whole experience, going through Pink Floyd, I totally got it this go around, and and I it really elevated this this song for me to a, a level that I hadn't experienced before. I never thought it was a wise choice to have Richard Wright sing. Uh, lead on this back in the day. I, I still don't know that it was the right choice for 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 uh, the album, but I'm you know all things considered, and many years later, I'm so so happy that 
they did it and i i hope that they are but i just it's just such a like a nice it's just a nice tribute to have him singing this song i think as well and it, it makes me real happy this song left a bad taste in my mouth uh, recently probably because of the recordings we're doing because it made me it really it compared Richard Wright's voice with Gilmore's and it, it it's pretty much mine compared to Paul's. <laughs> oh, wow. I'm not quite sure about that. I don't know what that Wright's means and I disagree. Voice. I don't know what you're uh, talking about. Um, because I you know, I've been you know I have a harder time with vocals per se. <laughs> so I was like it it was like a parallel universe. I suddenly was like focused in on this um, Richard Wright's voice, and I was like, "Oh God, that's how I sound compared to Paul." <laughs> no, no, no. So, um, you know, that's just silly. It's the it's a the song's fine, but I kind of I'm like, yeah, why didn't Gilmore just sing the song? Because he, he would have sang it fine. I like how it ends on like a major chord too. You know. Like the whole thing, and then at the end, very, very to me, very typical of Wright's influence in the earlier uh, Floyd days, and even in things like um, "Shine on You Crazy Diamond" and um, "Dark Side." Fair enough. The flavor research department didn't catch my slip. I said the summer of '69. Uh, it's the summer of '68 yeah. for Pink Floyd. Our apologies, Ken. I went, right, I went right to Brian Adams. Sorry, I couldn't. I just was like, "Why is he bringing that up?" <laughs> <laughs> so from that, we move into "Take It Back." I don't know how I feel necessarily about this song as a whole, but what I will say is, I absolutely am floored by the lyrics. I love, absolutely love, the basic construct here of the way that insecurities can be can be fed upon and manifest themselves in a romantic relationship and the ultimate price that is paid for that having made that mistake once or twice in in my life i i respond to this i understand what's being said here and i think it's being presented in a very um you know palatable clever way that i respond to it's kind of like the cover my eyes of pink floyd this song it is with the delayed guitar i was going to say the yeah. kaylee of pink floyd <laughs> <laughs> did it need to be six minutes long yeah I, I don't know that it needed to be six minutes long no if i was listening to this on an on an lp it would after and after flipping the record after wearing the inside out i would probably find this very refreshing to begin the second part of the program you know if i'm if there's a song that i'm gonna get off the couch to go refill my beverage or fill up my jar of gummy bears it's gonna be probably this this one <laughs> gummy bears are an we, important we, part of the listening experience <laughs> <laughs> we know what you do on your friday nights yeah but i i specific i mean it's all about the words but i mean is it is it really, is this concept emotionally healthy? 
she can take it back. She will take it back someday. I mean, if well, you're yeah, going to be Zen about it, you're not about it. She's going to. <laughs> I mean, and, and it be- here's here's what I like about it because that's always there, right? And in the beginning, you know, the the first verse, everything is wonderful. You know, the 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 love is so easy and it's it's great. But in the back of your head is this fear that she's going to take it somewhere. So in the second verse, you sort of start, you know, to exert that dominance and, and doing those jackassery things that men can do in order to either A, prevent her from doing it or B, prove that she won't do it. And in effect, it creates the self-fulfilling prophecy. That's what I like about it. Mm. Mm. You know, and... Intense. And, and, and through it all, the, you know, the woman has agency. And, you know, it, the way to, to keep this wonderful love is not to obsess over the fact that she has the agency to take it away from you. By worrying that she's going to or she could take it away from you, you are going to make manifest that very situation. I respect that. So okay. heavy-duty relationship advice from, uh, from Polly and David here. Dig it. And there is a really pretty sweet instrumental breakdown with some dueling guitar solos that are like sort of harmonizing and stuff. That's pretty cool, too. Which takes us then to coming back to life. Ken's like looking at the clock. (laughs) (laughs) See, 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 we already had signs of life. (laughs) And now we're coming back to life. If you have to work this hard at life, are you really living? You know, just gotta. This this song confuses me musically. I don't know what to do with it. I don't know if it should be here. It's the only time on this album where I'm like, oh, Guy Pratt's having some fun. That's kind of cool. But I, I don't really know what to do with it. Uh, I guess on on the wikis, there was saying that there was something like some crazy amount of number of songs that they wrote for this album, like forty seven or something. Yeah, and I'm like. Yeah. So there was 47 songs that they wrote for this album, and this song made it to the top 11. I mean, there's nothing wrong with this song, but maybe there's some sort of politics involved why this song sort of made it in to this top 11. But there's nothing wrong with it. It's just it's not Pink Floyd at its best. I repeat myself, but did it need to be six minutes long? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, it's It's a great David Gilmore vocal performance. For sure, I don't. I don't know that I need the the th- the thotting sort of you know poppy happy guitar playing syncopated up strums. Yeah. Well, and there's no chorus. There's just verse one, verse two, and an outro. I, I enjoy the lyrics. I don't know what the hell they're they're about or what they mean, but I I enjoy them. And 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 I guess that's the weird. Like you know, it. This is the the funny thing about my experience with this record is like I sit here and if I if I want to objectively tell you. You know, like, yeah, this song, yeah, you know, ah, the guitar, the, it's not really what I want from Pink Floyd. It's whatever. You know, there's this is great. That's great. But and yet, you know, when I sit down and listen to this album, I really, I really do enjoy it front to back, even though like some of these songs, ah, you know, songs by themselves, maybe not, maybe not as, uh, as, as great as I would like, but I, it's almost like with a division bell, the whole is in, in fact greater than all of these songs individually. I think that's a good call out, Paul. When you take these out of context 
and talk about them individually, you're right, they, they kind of dim a little bit. Um, you know, much like, let's, let's have some fun with our youth, right? When you would put the crystals into the little, little pylons in Land of the Lost, Right. If you had the right combination, things would light up and wonderful things would happen. So Jesus. <laughs> oh. mm. Lord have mercy. <laughs> that's uh, what's really bizarre is that's the second reference to Land of the Lost I've I've seen this week or heard this week. Oh, really? That's ridiculous. That's bizarre. Those... Somebody posted slee stacks on uh, on uh, on Facebook. When I when I was like five, six, seven years old, whatever it was, those slee stacks scared the shit out of me. Oh my god. <laughs> I sure hope there isn't an, an Instagram page called the Babes of Land of Lo the Lost. <laughs> hmm. it, it would, it, there wouldn't be a lot of posts, Tom. It would be all Holly. It was yeah. it was no Buck Rogers, that's for sure. It would be flagged. It would be flagged for inappropriate. Content. <laughs> <laughs> oh lord! Or reptilian life forms, one or the other. <laughs> on that note. Uh <laughs> on, on that, wait, coming back to life is kind of like the the cowboy crazy alt country of this album. It's got like this when the beat kicks in, it's got like a cowbell kind of thing, a little strut to it, and yeah. it, it's my least favorite genre. But Paula, you and your sons have embraced a, a taste of alt country, so yeah. so, so may, maybe it's not all bad. But it, it, I'm 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 hearing kind of like a, an adult contemporary radio thing through this that that yeah. kind of bugs me. It, it does. It is kind of bothersome. And yet at the same time, like to Joe's point, like you can picture them really having a ball playing this on stage, right? You can just picture them as a band getting into this and just loving it. And, and, I, and I think that ends up being the charm of a lot of this stuff that maybe otherwise would be subpar. I'm waiting for Don Henley to just sing yeah. the middle section. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so crazy. Oh my god, that's so. It's funny. like the dude from the the Brian Adams band guest soloed for a little a couple passes. You know, it's just bizarre. Now the next track we have is is the it was the first single they released. Keep talking. Now I, I it keep talking. Much like learning to fly is is a song that I'm. My initial inclination is to completely dismiss as simple and obvious and everything else for all the, the um, hopefully obvious reasons. However, when I listen to it, I find I really enjoy it, but I do still struggle with this record to this day, thanks to one Mr. Paul Zotter, who... Wow. In 1994 or 1995, back in the day when we would we would send all sorts of interesting tapes back and forth to each other, at one point, Paul, you became fixated on the idea of rewriting Keep Talking as I Need a Sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you sent me a recording of you listening to this track <laughs> With with your alternate lyrics spoken slash sung very loudly over top of it, all around needing a sandwich. <laughs> and so, so I to this day I bear the scars of that. And uh, while I love this song, I keep hearing I need a sandwich. <laughs> Just give me a sandwich. <laughs> oh. 
Wait, who did this? <laughs> I'm, I'm so sorry, Joe. I, I completely forgot about that. <laughs> I'm remembering this in my very core. That's funny. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, but but we only would have had cassettes back then. So, in order for me to hear this, it had to travel by cassette. Right. I believe it was originally done. As I'm sitting here thinking about it, Paul and I had this this stretch where we would we each had a micro cassette recorder in our car, and we would <laughs> talk it back and forth that way. <laughs> Remember the micro cassette? <laughs> <laughs> I'll bet you. I'll Bet you twenty five bucks. I still have the micro cassette up in my closet oh somewhere. Uh, <laughs> I need a sandwich. <laughs> oh my god! I'm gonna be listening to that song as soon as we're done. <laughs> So this that's why I, that's the baggage that I carry around. But as an adult, <laughs> listening to this, there are a couple of things that that sort of strike me. Now, one, and and I mentioned this, I believe, when we were talking on Sunday. You know, I was not aware that this that the the spoken word part was actually Stephen Hawking, and I'm embarrassed that I didn't know that. I, I should have known that, uh, but apparently these. These very phrases that are used here from Stephen were part of some sort of advertisement that spoke to David to the point where he, you know, went through the legal channels to get um, to get the the rights to use them and, and put them in here. And you know, again, embarrassingly, what tipped me off was when I started listening to the. Uh, the endless river and and one of the tracks is talking hawking and i'm like what wait and it's, uh, i was just like i smacked myself in the head i'm like what a, what an uh, idiot but the other thing that really gets me is musically one of the things i like about this is is musically it's very tense right he, he creates this tension and leaves it there for us to sort of chew on which you know again ironically i never really picked up on that explicitly and so when I was thinking about it critically for this exercise, I'm like, oh, no wonder I like this so much because um, mm. it is it's it's very tense. And I, I generally um, I generally respond to that sort of thing. But it, it 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 has this sort of plodding, helpless feeling between the music and the way the phrases are are repeated and the way that the the backing vocalist will repeat the phrase you're just like you're being ground up over time with this song and 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 if you've you know if you've been in a in a situation a relationship where and i you know i'm i'm famous for this sort of thing where it's like the more you talk the almost worse it gets, right? <laughs> and and you're just looking for well, what what's the right fucking thing, and and you just keep trying, and and it, you know, it can get worse and worse and worse, and so that's what I kind of like about this this song. <laughs> 
this is where the album gets good. Yeah. I, I like the groove. I like the vibe. You talk about it being tense in terms of the lyrics, but the actual bed, the music is reassuring to me. It's got a little groove to it. It works. Um, you guys, Paul, Tom? Uh, yeah, this, yeah, I mean, this is a, a really great hook, especially the last, well, the last three songs all have strong hooks, but the last two songs um, have hooks that really stay with me. And um, they, I think it's a great way to finish an album. And they're all around, the lyrics are strong. All around these, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a great song. A lot of texture. There's still, there's sort of popular songs, but there's, they have like a really rich Pink Floyd texture. Um, there's a lot of weight to these songs. Um, they don't go full pop, you know, because they, they, they still maintain the um, Pink Floyd um, template, and it's, um, I, I love it. I love it. Yeah. He uses the talk box in this song at the end, I think. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah, which is kind of cheesy, um, <laughs> but um, but I, but I think I want to say this song, and and then the 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 one that uh, uh, what do you want from me? He's really got the uh, young lust get lead guitar tone yeah. dialed in uh-huh. <clears throat> that I I really I really dig, but. Yeah, I, I like the tension in this, and and Ken, you're right. The the music bed underneath is is pretty solid, and and I like it a much better now. Like like a, the recurring theme for me is I like it much better now than I did when apparently I I didn't like it enough to not make sandwich parodies out of it uh, in my youth. And then lost for words. Now trolling Roger. Yeah, exactly. This this is this is perhaps the other, you know. Um, situation where we're trolling Roger um, specifically, but but that being said, I I just I love this song. I love everything about this song. Uh, I think it's it's really really spectacular. If you look at this, to martyr yourself to caution is not going to help at all because there'll be no safety in numbers when the right one walks out of the door. That's really nice. I like that. While you are wasting your time on your enemies, engulfed in a fever of spite, beyond your tunnel vision, reality fades like shadows into the night. I mean, those are pretty, pretty hardcore things. We here in the United States um, have a certain perception of, you know, the English demeanor. And I was a little surprised in our last conversation with Mark Anthony Kay to to hear that that gets applied to Canadians as well. But when you hear David Gilmore oh, yeah. singing, but they tell me to please go fuck myself, he he expresses that in such a genteel way that an American would never <laughs> express. <laughs> right? It's it's just you, you want to be shocked because. Um, with the exception of Not Now John in the final cut, Pink Floyd is not known for using expletives in songs. And, you know, while, and, and you know, here again, it's another sort of dichotomy juxtaposition between the two of them. In Not Now John, 
Roger is holding up both middle fingers when he's doing that, and he's having the, the background singers sing fuck every other word. And here, David just slips it in in a very gentlemanly way, and you're like, wait, what mm-hmm. a second, huh? what happened? Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's, it's just ex, you know, it's illustrating the difference between the two of them. And the fact that this, this song does feel to be a Roger troll, I think that's not accidental. And it's a beautiful chord progression. <laughs> and there's that. Yeah, I say that album gets good here, and I'm just like, wow, why wasn't this in the beginning somewhere? Yeah, I mean, it does seem that this album is sort of backloaded a lot, which gets us into High Hopes. Now, High Hopes, golly. Um, I believe in The Lost Art of Conversation, David himself describes this song as a, quote, killer, and I think he's absolutely right. Paul, you and I had a conversation the other day about what this means. Forget everything I said. It's it's about his childhood in Cambridge. And mm. it's interesting when knowing that. And, and I went back and actually read the lyrics and paid attention. And you can kind of get that, right? Because, <clears throat> and, and you get this sort of two-way mirror thing going. Because you have, you have the expression of the, the sort of, and the boundless hopes of youth and everything that's in front of you. And then you also have the looking back from older adulthood and recognizing that that sort of potentially misplaced enthusiasm, right? And so when he sings, the grass was greener, that to me, that speaks of two things. Because one, it speaks to... Um, you know, when you were young, you saw the grass greener in your future. But when you're older and looking back, you recognize that, you know, maybe the grass was actually greener back there. So, yes. you know, it's I, I love that sort of two way street that he's got going here. And it, it's 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 almost slippery trying to figure out which perspective you're you're on. It's almost like an Escher painting or something where you, 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 you have the, the image and you're trying to figure out which part of it you're actually seeing. Yeah. And that was the part that I connected with, which is why I asked, you know, what was it about? Because I, you know, knowing that that could apply to so many things, life in general, even right. Yeah. And so I was curious if it, if it had some sort of specific, uh, specific meaning uh a meaning um yeah i i love i'm sorry go ahead tom i was just gonna say this is an incredible way to end an album Mm -hmm. and there's so much beauty in this song the melody in the chorus is obviously the one that sort of sticks with you but when you listen to the song from start to finish and you and you really take in um, again. I'm going to say the word te- texture again. There's that that Pink Floyd texture. Everyone sort of just layering layering in their their piece. There's just like really really wonderful Pink Floyd moments. And this is sort of uh, a beautiful way to really end an era. Really, because I know we'll talk next week about endless river but i mean this to me is sort of like their last album and this is like the last song the last album and this is a great way to finish uh a legacy and i don't mean to take anything away from endless river and we'll talk about that but this song 
is to me um, it gives me goosebumps. The melody, the all the, the the really nice things that Richard Wright is doing in here, and uh, the production. I mean, the production is like a, a separate player almost in the song, and it's just just this this is a a great Pink Floyd moment right here with this song. I don't know that I can add anything else. You, you guys are are hitting. I mean, it's just an epic song. The chorus, the 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 way it hits you, the instrumentation at the beginning, and the instrumentation at the beginning. Come on, it. What does it do? It goes right into the E minor progression. You know, E. I mean, no one even needs to pick up an instrument to know they're playing E F sharp G. Um, it it. You know, I. To me, I, I'm with you, Tom. To me, this one seems like the intentional last album of Pink Floyd, even though they came back and ended with Endless River. Like, this was the intentional, and I think this song punctuates the lengthy career perfectly. Yeah. So, Polly Sampson contributed lyrics to six tunes, this being one of them. I knew this prior to our Palaver exercise because I had come across probably YouTube of Gilmore doing it acoustically, which is just phenomenal. And, and I think someone covered it. Someone covered this? Really? Yeah. Paul, do you have the research at your fingertips? So I'm going, I'm going. (laughs) Yeah. But I, I researched this song a couple years back and realized that it was about his childhood. Polly brought it out of him more than he ever would have on his own. And I get the idea that Cambridge, England, I suppose, you know, famous for education in schools and, and, and Gilmore was raised by educators. But there's also a very industrial feel to this song. When you talk about the monstrosity yeah. of it, Joe, and, and the weight of the song, mm-hmm. it does seem to be the, you know, the black sheep city or the, you know, one of the more <laughs> austere cities in, in, in England, by, by the way, he's, he's, he's envisioning his childhood there. And, and um, we'll have to ask Ken Fuller about, you know, the reality of Cambridge versus our American perception of Cambridge. Hmm. Very well. Um, I look forward to the opportunity. That sounds like a lessons learned episode. Indeed. There we go. So, uh, yeah, I was impressed with the song. Uh, I, I, I um, needed no convincing. I'm pleased with Polly's influence on, on, on David, despite, you know, whatever Roger may say about it. And, uh, yeah, this, th- this one stays with me, dis- despite me kind of breezing over the rest of the album. And this was, right. th- this was, this track is on the Live in Gdansk performance, mm-hmm. and it is spectacular <laughs> performed uh live with that specific band as well so yeah it, it it translates exceptionally well live and uh it's really just it's remarkable in my opinion so ken i have a i i've have a high hopes cover by a uh um, finnish band called nightwish it's kind of metal really and, and then there's a uh cover there's some dude doing all the instruments, Charlie Narduzzo. Um, Why don't I make this simple for you? Ray Wilson. Oh, sh- 
Seriously? <laughs> I found it before. You. Yeah. <laughs> Ray you Wilson out, does man. this? Yeah. Yeah. Got to check it out. Okay. I do have to check it out because I love me some Ray Wilson. And I think vocally, Ray Wilson probably is more in David Gilmore's wheelhouse than he is in Phil Collins' wheelhouse. Now we're talking. <laughs> There's actually... So here's something fun. There's actually a YouTube video of a guy covering Ray Wilson's version of him covering High Hopes. So you can get a cover of the cover, but we'll stick with the, the, the Ray Wilson version. Maybe the Palaver can cover that. <laughs> <laughs> Partly Palaver. Okay, so I think, you know, there's, there's pretty much unanimous unanimity of around high hopes it's phenomenal it's epic it's wonderful it's great and i can't wait to hear ray wilson do it and um i think that pretty much closes out the division bell so ken hopefully it wasn't too terrible for you and um you know i'll be curious to see what kind of conversations we have about the endless river next week but i think you know in terms of this this particular episode, High Hopes, is a wonderful way to end and go out. And, you know, after we sign off, I will, you know, uh, I will drift off to sleep with happy thoughts of, of David Gilmore um, and, and this massive song. Here, well, here. Sure. Wonderful. Yeah, once again, uh, Progressive Palaver has like rekindled my love for an album that I probably would have not listened to for many, many more years. And, uh, you know, as is often the case, like just when I'm like, okay, now that I've listened to this album, we're going to talk about it. I'll move on to the next one. Most likely I'm going to listen to this three times tomorrow again. After <laughs> <tonight>. <laughs> Outstanding. I don't think Ken is. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, gentlemen, thank you as always for your time and your energy here on on this palaver. Next week we will finish out the album portion of Pink Floyd, and then we have a couple of, of follow-up items that we have to sort of finish out. We're going to revisit the the subsequent versions of the wall. And that is going to lead us right smack into episode 100 and the extravaganza that episode 100 will be so everyone has that to look forward to and um yeah it's going to be spectacular so as always i will thank you gentlemen and i look very much forward to next week when we can talk about the endless river We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Progressive Palaver. As always, we've very much enjoyed sharing the conversation with you, and we look forward to your thoughts, comments, feedback, and questions. You can reach us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. We are at ProgPala, or search for Progressive Palaver on all of those. You're welcome to email us. Our email address is progpala, that's P-R-O-G-P-A-L-A, at gmail.com. Progressive Palaver is available for subscription and download on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, at some point Pandora, or presumably wherever you find your podcast. And we are, as always, hosted on SoundCloud. So until next time, thanks for listening.
So anyway, I had this whole nightmare. <laughs> we'll have to take this out of the, the episode, but I have to tell you about this nightmare. I had. It had to do with the skyline. Um, you bring up the skyline. I had to tell this story. <laughs> so we had a great lunch, a, a great cheesesteak. Everything was wonderful. My dad had a good time. Um, a few months after that, I had this nightmare that I actually moved back home um, to my mom and dad's house, and they wanted to buy the skyline, and they actually bought the skyline. And so Charlie and I had somehow moved home, and now we were like in charge of like revitalizing the skyline. But it was <laughs> oh like God. a hit. Like I was arguing with the old owners because I wanted to put like ba- have bands in there, and the guy's like, "Oh, there's no room for bands. You'd have to like take down section of the bar." And so, and then like, so I'm arguing with this guy, and then I'm arguing with the 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 woman in the back. And because like there was all these like greasy like stove tops and, and I had to clean it all. I was like in there and I had like grease all over me from the cheesesteaks. And then and the, at the end of the at the end of the nightmare, I'm in the trash in the back, and I'm like cleaning up. I'm like up to my neck. It's like Star Wars, like the trash compactors. Oh my god! I'm like in the back trying to clean up everything, and there was this like uh, homeless lady back there. And she's like, I'm like, hi. I'm like, she's like, oh, hi. My name is so and so. I live back here. And I'm like, <laughs> shitting me. And I'm like, you know what? That's fine. I'm not gonna. I'm gonna pick my battles. You can stay back here. Just, just don't get in the way. So anyway, I had this. There was like this whole list of like nightmare things about the skyline. But because I, I was like part of my childhood. Wow. But like going back, I realized after I woke up, I never, ever, ever want to own a bar or, or any sort of restaurant. Because you just get into doing stuff that you don't want to do. I digress. I apologize. Wow. You brought up the skyline. It's your fault. Paul, uh, can can we put this in the pre-show? <laughs> I know. Message. We should edit this. It's just about a, we just uh, put some pictures. That's awesome. That's fantastic. That was so much better than this instrumental. <laughs> <laughs>